Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to videographer Gary Milton. He describes himself as a snowboarder through and through, one who every year has a best day, a day spent with old friends and new friends and riding powder. It's reminiscent of his upbringing in Palmer, Alaska, where he and his buddies would explore the surrounding woods and mountains. They'd snowboard 16 mile, and for their age and their ability, it was filled with huge and intimidating jumps that had names like The Beast and Endless. One was a big boulder, and the other was basically a 20-foot step-down jump. The walls in his bedroom became proof of his love for snowboarding. It was plastered with posters and covers ripped from snowboard magazines. Years later, when he started filming for the Transworld snowboard video, he walked into their office in California and saw so many of the same photos he had on his walls as a kid. It was a surreal moment that felt like he had somehow manifested a childhood dream. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, Jake Liska, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at Tee Public, From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Gary Milton. For 10 years, he helped film snowboard videos for Think Think, Transworld Snowboarding, and Videograss. It was all-consuming. Every year, there'd be six months of filming, with chances to go home for maybe four days a month, if he was lucky. Then there'd be one or two months dedicated to editing. And then it was premiere season. It was exhausting and rewarding. But he ultimately got burned out and moved on to filming a hunting show called Team Elk for five years. He eventually decided to get into therapy because he didn't like where his personal life was heading. There was just too much drinking and bad decision making going on. He wanted to understand and overcome his childhood trauma and end those patterns of abuse to reestablish himself as reliable, thoughtful, and caring. Someone his wife and his daughter could rely on at any time of the day. And that's exactly what he did. So here he is, Gary Milton. (laughs) 
<laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. You feel like you should have a photo of me? Yeah, like your face. <laughs> <laughs> it's my ADHD, which supposedly I don't have anymore, but long story, short story. Does that happen? Like it just leaves? Like you cannot have ADHD anymore? I don't know. So here's the thing. I never got tested until I was at UNR. And... um. I was, so I took French in high school and then for my degree, I had to take two years of language. So I was like, oh, I'll take French, but it was college level, you know, you're partying and all that. And I think the first semester I got like a C and I'm an A, a student, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, this is just way harder for me to get immersed in this class, speaking another language when you're at a new school and everything's exciting and fun. And so my buddy told me, he's like, hey, there's a way to get out of it. But it's like a five, six hour test. <laughs> and dude, so I'm like, well, I'm going to take it. So it was a test. It was a test <laughs> of it's basically like an intelligency test, your language ability, your reading ability, math, all that. And so I was like, OK, I got to fudge my reading or language a little bit on this test in order to be able to take other classes. And so I took the test and they're like, oh, you have ADHD. Um, and it looks like you're at the 98th percentile and everything except for your like language reading. So, and it's, it's just slightly down, but we suggest you should take other classes than your language re requirement. So I got out of my French language requirement and was I took like history of East Asia one and two in a Basque studies class. How'd you do in those? A, I got A. A's. Um, but they were, they just wanted you to be to study a different culture basically to yeah. fulfill that language skill. Boring, as my daughter would say. <laughs> <laughs> she calls you out. I mean, she calls me out all the time because she's a toddler. She's four. Yeah. So she'll be like, dad, what's wrong with your hair? <laughs> or like I popped a zit right between my eyes the other day. And she's like, what, dad, there's a mark on your face. <laughs> <laughs> or she's like, your breath stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's positive things too when she kisses me on the cheek or tells me she loves me without being prompted, you know? Yeah. Cause it's all repetition. You, you know, I just, I tell her, I love her like as, as much as I can. Cause I didn't get that, you know? Okay. Are we recording? We're recording. We are recording. Yeah. I kind of started right when you were talking about <laughs> wanting a photo of me. So, you know, who you're talking to I know. <laughs> Since this is just audio. I know. I'm just looking at the <laughs> clean feed logo. Maybe I haven't, I probably have a photo of you when we lived with each other in Tahoe. Dude, I can text you one right now. And then that way you're just looking at your phone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Cause my, my brain's going to be like wandering, I'm sure, but it is what it is. I'm ready. You know, 
<laughs> okay, I just texted you a photo. Okay, let me see this photo. <laughs> just sent you an email from Queen Feet. Where is... Oh, I got... Oh, it's because I'm on airplane mode on my phone. Because <laughs> I'm like, no distractions. Hold on, this might take a sec. Oh, it's my sister. My sister keeps texting like a thousand text messages. Oh, there you are. Hey, I should send you one of me. Yeah, there you go. That thing on my head is a cold pack because it's so hot in my room. Oh, we have AC. Oh, we oh, both nice. have like white walls. I think here, here's the main reason why I wanted to see your face. Let's see. Oh, look at There you are. That's perfect. I, I like set up a background of uh, James, um, uh, Mark Landvik's friend, James. He's an artist. Yeah. Johnson. Clinkett Clink Johnson. Yeah, yeah. I have a piece of his art that Mark gave me for helping him move some stuff. Oh, that's awesome. It's a beautiful piece. James is like, ah, that's kind of my early stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it looks like it's, you, you know, native art is just, uh, incredible. It's incredible, but it's, it's also like pulls something, um, deep within your human soul where you're like, this is an ancient art. Mm, yeah. Okay. Like, it, like it's, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Not raw, but, uh, it just feels like it, every time I look at this piece, it pulls me back in time, you know? Yeah. And I just think of like humans at that time creating art like this. You know, I completely agree with that. And it reminds me of how I feel about tea. The tea that I like has to taste like dirt. You know, those are my favorite teas. And for some reason uh -huh. in my head, the the more that a tea tastes like dirt, the more that I'm like, yeah, you know, this is what Jesus drank. You know, because oh, it just, okay. it just you're getting tastes back like it's from the earth. earth. Yeah, yeah, the earth. Yeah, exactly. I was like, are, are, do you like to punish yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I've been a naughty boy today. <laughs> I just like drinking coffee that's black. <laughs> I have, uh, so here we go. I was... Here's the tangent. Um, I was with Bodie Merrill, Andy Wright, Chris Grenier, and maybe one other person helping us at the time. And I was filming um, a real snow edit for Bodie. And we were in Colorado. We were in Denver, actually, where you live. Mm -hmm. And we were taking a break. Andy's driving our rental car to go get some coffee. Well, we have a flat. And so I'm like, engage fix it mode <laughs> jump out change the tire real quick we go get a coffee he orders his you know and i'm like can i get a vanilla latte and andy looks at me he's like you're like the most manly man i've ever met that buys the most girly drinks <laughs> and that might not be pc these days but i was like hey i like what i like and that's kind of uh, a representation of kind of who i am at my soul and ego yeah. Is that, yeah, I've got, you know, growing up in Alaska, um, every dad or mom kind of has to do a little bit of everything, you know, because if you go out into nature and shit hits the fan, you're stuck. So you need to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, like, I love that part. Like, that's my brain loves tinkering and fixing. And I can remember back when I was like four years old and, or five, what was it? 
probably six. Uh, and we were in Palmer and I had like an RC car and like a, a helicopter that just went up and down off this little pad, you know, mm -hmm. little hydraulic. And I was like, I was like, I'm going to transform them together. And I was taking them apart and putting them together. And they had these squiggly pens that you could, uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties, where you would, they had a switch on them and they could do circles and other wiggly things. I invented one of those, like when I was like six Yeah. with my mom's hair dryer and a little, uh, um, little switch and a motor, but I didn't know anything about, um, electrical. And so I just cut a cord and tied it up and plugged it into the plug and a white light flash <laughs> and blinded myself. <laughs> but that's where it started. So, um, but I think I've always been a, the way I grew up, I've always been a very like sensitive, empathetic person. Yeah. And, um, you know, harsh environments can create harsh people whether that's cold, the cold darkness of Alaska or your, your family life. And I used humor to get out of those dark times. And luckily it's followed me throughout my whole life. But my sister, she goes, my sister's very, um, spiritual and sees signs, you know? Mm -hmm. And she goes, well, that's because your, your ego is feminine. Huh? Okay. And I was like, it really, it kind of resonated with me, uh, you know, and that's like cultural bias, right? Like a woman is more sensitive than a man. You know, what's interesting is my sister is pretty spiritual too. And she recently did like my signs, you know, like, uh, you know, Aquarius, all that stuff. Yeah. And I forget what it's called, but she was reading me this report and I am, what is it? 60% masculine and then 40% feminine, if I remember correctly. So that surprised me. Um, that's interesting, you know, and so I have a degree in anthropology and a minor in psych. I went to UNR. Uh, we were there, I think about the same time. Yeah. You came a little later, but within that degree, you learn that, you know, physically skeletal remains of ancient humans and stuff there is more you know feminine men and masculine women it's the full gamut mm -hmm. so it makes sense that maybe ego wise or how you um associate yourself that you would be that you're on that spectrum it's it's in you know it's in the natural world with other animals and everything but people look, you know, just the other day I was at a birthday party for our buddy Tipton and I was with Pat McCarthy, Brendan Keenan, and uh, shout out to those guys. And um, Pat just was like, he always calls me a beast. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess because I'm 6'4 and, and strong and strong personality. Yeah. But I'm just a, you know, like most power, I think most powerful people are just big teddy bears. At their heart? At their heart, like true power. You're starting to see it more. I don't really follow MMA, but there was a guy who won a fight and he talked about mental health and suicide and how one of his friends 
had committed suicide back in England or Scotland or something recently. And that really, that resonated, you know, that the, that there's a cultural shift about men talking about trauma more, you know? Is that important to you to talk about trauma as a man? Yeah. Um, I made a list once. I won't really go into it, but it was pretty lengthy about just starting out as a little kid through life and the, the different bullying, the broken bones, the mental um, trauma, mm-hmm. you know, with words and everything. And uh, man, my list was so long. I was like, I'm, I'm doing great <laughs> considering what I've been through. But, you know, when I'm at a barbecue or something, or on the lift, men don't really talk about that stuff with one another. You know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of realized that and I was like, wow, this list is very long. And I think it's important that we talk about it more and not just because it's, uh, it's good that it's being brought into the light more, but I think it's just important in general to talk about that stuff so that you can start breaking those um, generational, the generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of speaks to uh, my wife and I um, and our daughter, Elia, who's four, who just turned four. We've been very sensitive about not raising her the way we were raised and to stop the those, those traumas. Mm -hmm. And so far, it looks like we're doing a great job because she sees home as the safe place. Mm -hmm. That's important. Loving, you know, and that wasn't my, that's not how I looked at our house. (laughs) How do you look at your house? So it was pretty, there was, I have three siblings. Um, so there were six of us in the house, older brother, older sister. They had a different father, but we were all in the same house. My, my parents are still together. Um, it was pretty chaotic, which I think is pretty classic for the time period and maybe Alaska in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you live in kind of a chaotic natural environment where things change quickly and you kind of have to be on your toes. But I felt like I was on my toes all the time because you never knew what you were going to get from your parents without going into detail, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely don't want to bash my parents. But it is, an, it is a reality that has affected myself and my siblings that we've had to, um, you know, I went to therapy after filming snowboarding for 10 years went to therapy for a year, read a bunch of books because I didn't like the path that my life was heading. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm stumped on a mechanical thing, I'm going to go to a professional. So why not do that with my mind? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I could probably count on one hand how many men in my life where I live have gone to therapy. (laughs) it's like it's like two why do you think that is uh maybe it's a cultural stigma 
you know? I think that, you know, my dad's 6'5", alpha male, 100% Swedish Viking, size 15 foot, old school, heavy fist, thick belt. And um, he just had an old school mentality of what it meant to be a man. Mm -hmm. And that has shifted in some respect or is more acceptable and more fluid now that you can be a man who can, you know, wrench on a motorcycle, chop wood, kind of some, maybe some more uh, old school conservative style man. I guess just the definition in my, the way I was raised, you know, you got to be strong, bury your feelings. You got to be tough. Don't be a pussy. <laughs> You know, I, yeah. and that's, and that's quoting my dad. That's not how I talk day to day. Um, cause obviously, uh, pussies are way stronger than balls and wieners. <laughs> they're, way, <laughs> they're the toughest. <laughs> There's a little bit of old school Gary there. <laughs> wieners. Well, it's, it's, it's so funny to be a dad and like my daughter's like that you have no privacy, you know? So if you're going to the bathroom, your kid's going to come in and she's like, what's that? <laughs> and I go back to kindergarten cop where I'm like, boys have a penis. Girls have a vagina. <laughs> and, uh, my daughter just goes around. She's like, you have a vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how do I explain this to her? I'm like, boys have a penis. Some boys, because, you know, there's a, a wide range of humans. Yeah. But I totally forgot where my where my story was going. I think just being, it is important to, to talk about trauma, to address it, and to not continue it. Continue those um, patterns of our parents that are negative that negatively impact us, you know? Mm -hmm. So no spanking, uh, no hitting, no talking down to my daughter, mm -hmm. you know, uh, telling her that she's loved daily, telling her that she's, cause she is funny, uh, that she's funny, that she's intelligent. Um, because the, the, the pretty side, the gorgeous side, she gets that from other people. And us, you know, I tell her that she's um, beautiful because she is. But our friends, w my wife and I had this conversation because uh, her mom was kind of sensitive about it. She's like, oh, does that bother you that people focus on her looks? And I was like, no, I mean, you can't control other people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just that, you know, she is beautiful, but she is so many other things. If we were just like, you're beautiful, and that was it, uh, it might be detrimental down the line. But, you know, you learn as you go. I just do a 180 on the things I didn't like about my parents, you know? Yeah. And just try to give her as much love as possible and also give her space, which she's a very strong-willed kid, and she, she has no problem saying no. Is there anything that you have absorbed from your parents? You know, something positive? Yeah, I'd, I'd say my, um, 
my work ethic, my strive for perfection outside of relationships when it comes to working on a motorcycle or old car or doing carpentry, I try to do my best every time and continue to learn. My dad always took us on adventures, like a lot of dads in Alaska. Mm -hmm. You know, I went grizzly bear hunting when I was 12 and sheep hunting and caribou hunting and camping and fishing and uh, got into running and, um, you know, going to whole, on vacations later, a little bit later in life. They, try, they did their best with the tools that they had. Mm -hmm. And... I totally forgot the question. <laughs> the positive things that you've gotten from them. Yeah, just my mom's very artistic and loving. So, you know, uh, during the pandemic, like a lot of people, I picked up a guitar, you know, picked up a new hobby and have slowly been teaching myself how to play. And because we never had uh, music that much, like instruments, my parents didn't play anything. And I always wanted to learn the guitar and these other things. Um, but that's kind of another not thing. <laughs> are there any songs you're learning? Or are you just learning chords? No. So I know how to play Polly from Nirvana. Okay. Because I taught, I, taught I taught that to myself. Um, I did get a guitar in high school. But my interests were all over the place i was just i still am like this giant sponge that wants to continuously learn new things um so it was just like one of those things yeah i want a guitar i want to learn how to play guitar hey look at that butterfly over there mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah so i am learning nothing else matters um i'm halfway through it by metallica on the black album uh, and I do this in my life. I choose a very lofty goal without maybe having the skill Okay. <laughs> and just like, <laughs> and just sheer will and stubbornness get there. Yeah. And in that process, I learn a lot about myself and also that stepping out of the outside of the cultural box in life and doing things that people say you can't mm -hmm. um, is totally possible. So, so, uh, so a song like uh, a Metallica song is, it, it's very difficult, super difficult. It took me uh, six months to get halfway through it, repetitively playing it every day. But then I stepped away for about six months and you kind of lose it. So it's one of those things that you need to put into your daily routine. What do you think you learned from that? that I can do anything. I can do anything that I put my mind to, no matter there's, it's, you know, the metaphor of climbing a mountain. If you want to get to the top, you have to start at the bottom step by step mm -hmm. and not focus at the top of the mountain. So if I want to learn this song, it seems like a far off distant thing to get to. But if I chip away, every day i'll get there yeah small goals small goals big goals i've always been a goal oriented person sometimes i write them down sometimes they're con they're in my head 
I like to I like to talk about them and put them out there because it kind of forces me to back it up. Mm -hmm. Accountability. Accountability. Yeah. Like for example, when I when I stopped filming snowboarding after ten years, and got into therapy. How old was I? I think thirty four. 34 or 33, 33 to 35, somewhere in there. Um, and I wrote down all these goals by 40. And it, um, one of them was to stop drinking. Another one was to find a life partner. Another one was to have um, a kid, a family, um, to get a house to have some footage in um, a documentary, um, stuff like that. And I'm 43 and I've hit them all. That's incredible. Why did you decide to stop drinking? My dad was kind of all over the place when he would get home. You didn't know if you were getting Jim Carrey and like a fun loving person or like the Punisher. And so, for me, I wanted to be consistent in my emotions and behaviors to be a good father. And so that if Elia needed me at any time of night or Jennifer, my wife, that I'd be sober and I could do it mm -hmm. and nobody would get hurt. So I never, uh, I never partied in high school. I was an athlete and deep into school. Um, and then um, as one does and goes off into the world, I was like, oh, what's this all about? And then um, kind of having addictive personality, I was like, how, how, how far can I take this partying, which in a town like Reno is pretty uh, far. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it all, all that, um, the partying and like athletics and all these achievements and everything in my life as an adult, I look back and it was like a cry for, uh, love from my father that I was lacking and, uh, look at me. Hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, maybe that's part of your twenties. But it get that that person gets annoying. <laughs> yeah, that person might need to grow up. And I'm I'm yeah. talking about that person in reference to me. You know, when I look back on my twenties, I I am so happy to be done with them. You know, I'm I'm happy to be in my thirties. Like I don't know what it was, but once I hit thirty, I had this like wave of calm that just washed over me, you know? Yeah, I think you're trying to you're trying to you're still trying to figure out who you are uh, when you leave high school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as males, what is it, 25 that our brain is fully developed, I think science says. Um, so there's part of that, right? Um, your 20s are like figuring out, hopefully, figuring out who you are, how you fit in the world, how you see the world, who you want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe you emulate something that you really love from one of your friends and you're like, wow, I'd love to maybe do that. So yeah, your twenties, pretty tumultuous, uh, can be, mm. 
30s, like you said, you kind of lean into yourself and um, there is a calm. There is a calm. And I'm in my 40s now heading to my 50s. I'm still 43. Whoops, sorry, that's my chair. Um, and into my 40s, I'm like, wow, this is the best decade. Each decade after the 20s just feels better and better. And I think it's, you start shit, you start letting go of things that really have no meaning. What other people think, mm-hmm. who's Cody, you know, there's uh, who you think you are in your head. Or at least who you think you want to be. Or who you want to be. There's, there's how your wife sees you. There's how I see you. There's how your family sees you. You know, so who's the real Cody? <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the mind trip. Yeah. And for me, I, in, in my 40s, I'm like, yep, I can do anything. And I'm, I'm confident about my decisions in life. And you kind of need to get to that point before you, ideally, before you have a kid. Mm-hmm. And work on yourself and your whatever. If you had a great childhood, that's awesome. But everybody, um, I think everybody can um, use therapy in their life. Mm-hmm. Man, woman, whoever, you know. It's just a helpful tool to talk to somebody who's not in your friend group or family group because they have their own way. They see you, their own agendas and just being up, you know, kind of like a podcast where you talk about your life, talk about different things and get a, get a, um, a perspective from a professional air quotes because life really, nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. You know, um, people say they, this is how you're supposed to live life. But really, at least for me, as long as you're empathetic and a loving person to all humans, that's the way. Mm-hmm. You, you know, because it, it boils down to love, the lack of it or that you have it. And sending out love into the world, which can be a tough thing sometimes. It shouldn't be. <laughs> mm-hmm. But sending out love is just going to come back to you in a in in a positive way, and you never know what you say to somebody. They could be on the edge of a cliff, suicidal. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure you've you've experienced this in your life where you've you don't even think about what you're saying, and somebody comes back to you and they're like, "Wow, Cody, you really changed the course of my life because of your." positive outlook or whatever it may be, you know, I've had that happen. Oh, you have. Times. Oh yeah. Many times in my life. Recently I had a, a, a new friend, Ben, he works for Instagram or Facebook, whatever the company meta um, meta, <laughs> he works for meta, but he was a, a friend of a friend through snowboarding, Ricky Tucker and uh, Eddie Graham's Nate Farrell. Mm-hmm. They kind of started coming to Mount Baker where I ride now and uh ben was part of their crew and there was about 12 of them right they're like gary show us around and i'm like i'm not showing 12 people around baker mount baker (laughs) so i'm you know i'm like okay i'm gonna take them down this chute whoever comes down the chute that's who i'm riding with the rest of the day and i think ricky and nate came through and this this guy ben and he was just blown away he grew up on the east coast never been to baker 
never been in that type of terrain and he was just blown away just like oh my gosh i owe you a beer for that and i was like <laughs> nonchalantly you know i'm like oh yeah I, I i just said i don't drink but a bubbly water or something i mean but you don't have to get me anything i just love showing uh people what i love to do and get that stoke up you know and and laugh and smile well i unbeknownst to me he was kind of in the throes of addiction without telling his story too much. And that me saying that changed his course and he stopped drinking and, and whatnot. And we're two years later and he's still sober. Oh, that's great. I mean, that was, I'm sure he had been thinking about it, whatnot, but just goes back to, you just don't know positive or negative what you put out there. So mm -hmm. why not? You know, there's so much negativity in general um, on social media, media outlets and stuff that you could get caught up into it and get so much anxiety, you know. And I think that it probably helped that you were normalizing it, you know, that it, that it wasn't like a big thing. Yeah, because in the beginning, so I, so I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking weed like 10 years ago. I stopped drinking eight years ago. Um, and when I stopped drinking, everybody asked me why for a while, probably the first couple of years. And then now it's just like, yeah, Gary doesn't drink. It's not, it's not a conversation that I have often unless I meet somebody new. And I was like, well, nobody asks you why you drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, it didn't really, ch the only thing that changed was uh, I have more money. Um, but my psyche, my attitude, my sense of humor, it's all there. And my sister is an addict. I have friends that are addicts. My buddy, I have a friend who, uh, I think he's almost four years sober now. And he was like, how did you do it? And, but he's an actual addict based off of like what I've learned, you know, like I have had zero cravings um i don't think about it you know so like biology versus like something that's habitual yep okay. but i do have a, an addictive personality and i do when i get into something i kind of put on the horse blinders but i'm getting better at and i think that's just being a uh being a husband and a father uh you would lose your family if you had horse blinders on yeah. all the time on whatever you're doing. Okay, Gary, I realize that we haven't even got to some of these questions. So I want to, yeah, let's start. I, <laughs> I want to go back to Palmer. You mentioned Palmer earlier. What does it mean to you to have grown up in the Valley? So when you're a when you're a kid, okay, so I live in uh, Ferndale, Washington now. I've uh, been living in Bellingham, Washington since like 2005, 06. Um, and growing up in the valley for people outside of Alaska is kind of a stigma within Alaska. And I didn't really know that until um, I was in my teenage years that it was... Uh, kind of looked down upon um, from uh, people in Anchorage. 
I don't know if Juno was that way, um, but there's kind of this stigma of growing up in the valley that's negative, that you're just kind of backwoods, you know? Okay. Drug addict. I, I mean, can you attest to growing up? Oh, absolutely, I mean, you grew up yeah. Anchorage, so what, yeah. what was your view of the valley? Because maybe you have a better... You know what's interesting is I didn't have any negative views or any preconceived ideas about the valley um and i wasn't didn't really hear about them up until maybe i got older maybe there was a comment here and there like calling wasilla wasyphilis yeah you know there was something like that but um you know like you mentioned earlier with your dad and how he would take you out like adventuring all over alaska my dad did the same thing and so you know wasilla palmer um, that area was just another piece of the adventure, you know, and it wasn't until like maybe I got older and I started hearing from, you know, my peers or maybe other people in Anchorage being like, you know, saying disparaging things about the valley. Yeah. Which, you know, those stigmas don't um, come out of thin air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? So there's, there's like a cause. Yeah. I mean, there is a cause for sure. Um, but my viewpoint of growing up in Palmer was out, you know, my home life was not all bad. There's a lot of positives, right? Um, and growing up in the Valley, I loved it. You know, we grew up in a small town. Hatcher Pass was a big playground for us, whether it was uh, biking or hiking, uh, later snowboarding, cross country skiing, sledding, you know. Mm -hmm. um and fishing and just the access to the outdoors were right, literally right outside our house you know when i was 10 we moved from beaver street in downtown palmer to cl a little bit closer to wasilla on higher road on three acres and my parents still live there and less than a uh, half a mile down the street was uh, an old homestead four-wheeler trails um, going all over the valley so when we were i think about 12 my dad got a couple four-wheelers and a couple snow machines you know mm -hmm. one of those deals he's like i got them for 2500 all, <laughs> all four you know that's yeah. where it's that's where it started for me i was like well this guy's good at getting deals <laughs> i want to be like that but my brother and i would just go half a mile from our house and we would link up on a trail and we could go anywhere in the valley and the homestead was an old, uh, it was an old mine shaft and an old cabin that was like leaning over, you know, mm -hmm. and with all these old uh, boots in it, I think from the gold rush, super old. And we, we never thought to grab some of these boots. We would like hook up a rope on a four wheeler and I'd be like, brother, lower, <laughs> lower me down into this mine shaft, <laughs> you know, like exploring and you know, there's moose out there, Yeah. Uh, you know, dodging moose in the wintertime on our little snow machines. I think I had a Bravo 250 or something. And I would, I would just adventure so much. I'd break the windshield all the time and tell my dad that it was a moose <laughs> and he kept replacing them. He replaced like three. And I'm like, as a dad, I'd be like, why even have a windshield <laughs> and replace it? Or why are you hitting all these moose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he was like, he knew I was lying. Okay. But I was just trying to get under trees and, you know, get wild and yeah. jump, 
jump it. But we, we were, it was free reign to go uh, have an adventure every day if we wanted to right out of our door. Um, so Alaska's like that in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Anchorage is the big city. And so it was always a treat to go into Anchorage to the Fifth Avenue Mall or Borderline or, you know, and then go back to the valley and be like, oh, this is what I got. Kind of like here, like if you went to Seattle and got something cool and came back to, I mean, the world's changed a bit with the internet and a global economy, but you kind of get the idea. Um, And I was in athletics at an early age. Uh, in third grade, they were like, this kid's hyper and he's a fast runner. Let's put him in running. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it started. And my dad put me in, you know, I was in soccer for four years. I played basketball up until high school. And then I played in like a before high school basketball program for some reason. I wrestled for a year in middle school, baseball, uh, but running was kind of my big thing. Until, until I found um, snowboarding. Do you remember when that was? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was in eighth grade. And so we have a hill um, where, my, where we grew up on the three acres. There's this big old hill. So we basically had like a little snowboard park um, that we didn't know about because we didn't know about snowboarding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So my brother, I don't know what happened, but my younger brother, Eric, got a black snow uh, for a birthday or Christmas. And I was like, what is this thing? Cause I was, you know, into all kinds of athletics. I'm like, this, you know, and, and skate and skated in our little carport, you know, cause the rest is dirt classic Alaska. You know? Yeah. You get a little, a beam and that's your rail. <laughs> <laughs> learn, learn how to board slide. Um, and <laughs> the first time I strapped in, you know, when, uh, it snows a lot in Alaska and then it melts and gets kind of hard, but it's a little soft still. Yeah. And it's that snow that if you fall, it just rips your flesh off. Yeah. <laughs> so I strap into my, my brother's black snow. I think it was a 135. And I didn't know what stance I was. I just went goofy because I was goofy on my skateboard. And I was in like shorts and a t shirt or something and dropped in on our hill, <laughs> went across our driveway hit this bump and just like ate shit and ripped up my elbow. And I was like, this thing's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had friends, uh, some basketball friends that were art, you know, they had been riding for three or four years. I think this was 92, 93, somewhere in there. And, uh, I linked up with them and went up to Hatcher pass and rode 16 mile in paradise with them. And man, I was, they had that. That was the era that of all those Cadillac Sean Palmer boards. Yeah. Um, Cardiel boards. Uh, Cardiel board, you know, that famous one. And uh, yeah, yeah. And they just ripped down 16 Mile. And as a kid, 16 Mile was like this crazy run where they had this boulder called the Beast, which was literally like a 10 foot boulder to flat. And then there was a jump called Endless that was basically like 20, 20 foot step down. Um, but those guys could just rip and it took me a, probably an hour to get down mm-hmm. and I was just hating it, you know, slamming my butt. And, and then my freshman year, I met some friends and it really clicked. And I started going up to Hatcher pass hiking 
you know, uh, without, you know, a probe or anything. We had a shovel to build jumps and we had like, I had my Dekine Heli Pro that had like sandwiches and water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just, I started hiking with friends cause I was already like kind of an athletic runner, cross country skier kid and, uh, and skated. And it just, it was, it took everything I think of nature and athletics and I was hooked and I'm still hooked, you know, it's almost 30 years later and every year I have a best day ever. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Like straight up, you know, and it's the people who you ride with and the terrain and the, and the consistency of the snow has a part of it, you know, but man, it just blows me away. And it's the longest thing I've stuck with I, yeah. You know, what was your best day ever last year? Ooh. Oh, okay. So, uh, Andy Wright was one of the most prolific, uh, snowboard photographers ever, you know, mm-hmm. really super nice guy. I worked with him when I was in the industry and out of the blue, uh, towards the end of the year, you know, Mount Baker, it always rains there. It's not good snow. Tell everybody. that's what the locals told me when i first moved there internet's kind of killed that but everybody you know has access to weather feeds so andy wright out of the blue is like hey i'm gonna be up at mount baker for two days for this storm let's link up and ride and i'm like oh my gosh this is like my favorite thing is to show out of town friends my favorite spots to ride Mm -hmm. and so day one i was i'm I'm pretty militant because i don't have a lot of time as a father so I leave super early, I hike in, I try to get there first, then you have to do a one foot down to the lift, get on. It's this very like hectic Chinese downhill style to your first run. Okay. And then when you're done with the run, you're like, you can kind of breathe. Because <laughs> it's the drive, it's the hike in, yeah. it's the Chinese downhill. And then once you get your run, you're like, okay, cool. I can kind of relax because it's there's so many powder hounds. So I tell Andy, I was like, hey, meet me at this time. I'll save you a spot in line. And he's he's uh, camping in the parking lot. He kind of gets up late and has to. We don't link up day one. And it was like, you know, it snowed 26 inches the night before. And then it snowed like another 26 or 28 something, something wild. It was a two day, two day whammy. So day two, I'm like, Andy, meet me at this time. I'll hold you a spot in line and I will wait for you. Uh, cause it's hard to wait for out of towners. Some, <laughs> sometimes, you know, yeah, cause the, yeah. the, I guess everybody says froth, but the stoke is high. My stoke is still high 30 years later. I just love it. And, uh, so I take Andy Wright around Baker from 9 a.m. to 12.30 or so. And I kid you not, man, it was waist deep. I'm 6'4". It was waist deep or more on me. Andy's really tall too. And I just take him through all this terrain and we're laughing like we're 12-year-old kids. (laughs) And we're on the lift. Andy has filmed or taking photos for a long time in snowboarding, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's been on a lot of trips. He's been all over the world. We're on the lift and he goes... Gary, this is, he couldn't say the best day. Uh, He goes, this is the second best day I've ever had snowboarding. 
the best day was that Eagle Pass heli. And for a resort and for that type of snow, that just, I mean, it's like if you're a wine connoisseur with powder sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's not perfect, but Baker is pretty consistently awesome. Yeah. Uh, and that day was extra special. It was the best day of the year by far. And to spend it and show around just me and Andy was just like, man, just laughing and just the best time, you know, and he hadn't been to Baker since 1999 or 97 because just being busy. And he's like, man, I'm coming back next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually with friends that are from out of town where I have like those days. It does happen with, it does happen with the local friends that I've ridden with for a while, you know, man, you're making me want to ride some powder. <laughs> I don't think I've ridden powder in years. I think the last time that I rode pow was at alieska and it was with my friends sebastian clayton and i think my friend adam was there and we went down christmas shoot because it had just opened but i had just moved back up to alaska so it must have been like 2012 2013 and you know this is like post-college you know a lot of sitting a lot of drinking and and my body was just like gumby you know and and i remember just like oh this will be fun but it's pretty steep christmas is pretty steep and um i just did like this toe edge you know carve and i wasn't paying attention just my whole body wasn't into the carve which uh -huh. is crazy because i've been snowboarding since i was like A nine fetus. years old yeah <laughs> and so uh you know I, I just, it, I just like fell backwards. It was the weirdest thing. And I don't think I've ever done Whoa. it since. Yeah. I just kind of fell backwards. And I think the only thing that I can think of is I was so weak, you know, and I just start tumbling and I'm like, ha 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 ha. And then all of a sudden, like on one of my, <laughs> one of my tumbles, I get a look at Clayton and Sebastian's face. And it was just like, this isn't good. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. And I start going, and then I start like, you know, trying to grab myself, trying to stabilize myself. And luckily I did, but I tumbled like way too far down Christmas shoot. And it was kind of gnarly. Were you starting to head to some rocks? I saw rocks. Yeah, I was, yeah. but luckily I was like just straight down the middle, you know, that was lucky, but still you can get pretty broke off. I have a story about Christmas shoot with your father. Really? Just randomly, you know, when I started dating my, my wife, um, I started going back up to Alaska because um, I had, you know, I, I filmed a hunting show for five years. So I'd do that in the in the fall and then I'd kind of have the winter to snowboard and do whatever. So I'd go go up and to see Jennifer. And one of the stretches I stayed for like three months and I reconnected with Brady Farr. Um, shout out to him. And we were at Alieska and. I, I, man, I don't know if I ever rode Christmas shoot back in the day. I can't remember being a Valley kid, you know, it's kind of a journey to get to Alieska. It's just easier to go to Hatcher pass. And we get to the Brady and I get to the top. It's like, you know, I don't know, 11 o'clock and I see your dad and he's at the, you know, the, the sign and they're, they're getting, he goes, you better come over here <laughs> about to open up Christmas shoot. 
And he's like, he's he, your dad. It doesn't look like your dad. He's just all steezed out with a, like he has like his uh, his hoodie on or something. He's kind of incognito, just like chilling there, just waiting to strike like a panther. Yeah. And Brady and I just hop in with your dad. Wait. They open it up. We scramble to the top of the chute. And your dad, Brady, and I just ripped down awesome powder through Christmas shoot. And then about like halfway down, it started getting a little bit heavier and cut over. Uh, but it was just not planned. And, uh, man, it was just so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the first time you heard about Borderline? So I'm trying to think. Um, it ha- it must have been... It must have been when I... Th- so my freshman year was kind of my first real year snowboarding. And by year two, year three, I was really, really getting into it. And so I think, um, I don't know if, I don't think we had a shop in the Valley. There might've been one in Wasilla bandwagon, but that was later. Um, and so you had to, if you wanted gear, it was either Gary Kings, which they had one in the Valley. That's where I bought my first, real board mm-hmm. after the black snow i got a k2 gyrator that was you know like three inches thick with crazy banana bindings and nubbing was big at the time mm-hmm. so i cut the nose off to match the tail which it didn't really have a tail so it was basically like a lunch tray with no flex <laughs> really, really hard to snowboard on you know with some airwalk boots and so I, I bought a, my first board was a K2 Bob Marley board. And I wasn't even big into Bob Marley or reggae, but I was like, I love the art on this board. So I got that board. And then gear-wise, it was probably like 95 I heard about Borderline. And for a kid growing up in the, in the valley, snow, snowboarding was still, you know, 94, I think, was the launching pad for snowboarding the snowboarding public. It was like one of the biggest years, you know, of selling gear and people getting into it at the time. And, uh, borderline was to me was like Transworld snowboarding or snowboarder mag in, in, in the universe of Alaska. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would go to borderline and I think it was back, uh, what was the old spot it was at where the ledge is on Arctic? There's the, yeah. On Arctic. So I went there and bought like a shove it jacket and I was like, Oh, I think that's, I don't even know. It might've been your brother or, you know, I, and then I would, I would go to Art, Arctic Valley and they had the military side with, uh, um, air quotes, snowboard park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a rotunda where you could have lunch and everything there. It was kind of yurtish. And man, I remember one time I was there and I think Borgstead was there, Ashley Call, Bertner, maybe Mark Thompson, a bunch of people, you know, I think Ashley was like 15 at the time or 14. Like we were a similar age, but I had heard you know, Alaska's pretty, back then Alaska was pretty small and still might be community wise. Right. Yeah. And, you know, back then not a lot of people were snowboarding. It was more skiers. Um, so I just heard about these guys and to see them in person, you know, it just kind of blew me away, you know, cause I'm from a, a small town, Alaska. 
in Palmer, you know, you're kind of, uh, you're isolated in general in Alaska and then being in the valley you're, or a small town, uh, you're kind of isolated again, you know? Yeah. And then how long was it until, you know, you started to go to like the video premieres, the borderline video premieres and, you know, hanging out with those guys? So the first borderline premiere, I don't know if it was an actual, uh, well, was, was thunk. Um, and then nice Gordon. So I never went to the premieres. Um, I think I was busy with all the athletic stuff and, and going to college. I went to school in Durango, Colorado for a year and then came back to Alaska and worked, worked in Anchorage for a year and then went to school in uh, Reno. Okay. So I never went to, um, I never went to a snowboard premiere until I was a part of that world. Um, I'm trying to think maybe in Ta probably in Tahoe, Reno, I went to a couple premieres. Um, but it was more just seeing them at Alieska mm -hmm. or, you know, I've got a great story about your uncle Jay, um, at Hatcher pass. I was hiking up to go ride, um, I think we call it toilet bowl or something. <laughs> the the road basically you go, the road is closed in the winter up over Hatcher Pass to Willow, and so you'd hike up there and go to the left or right and and tread down. And I'm hiking up. I'm you know, fifteen, maybe fifteen, sixteen. Are you by yourself? I'm with friends, but I was like a fast hiker, so I was just like ripping up the road. Okay. And here comes. Uh, your uncle Jay on a snow machine and he's like, Hey, you need a lift. <laughs> and I was like, I, I totally didn't. My friends did, but I was like, yeah, that's Jay Liska. Oh my gosh. And roll up to the top and he's with Richie Fowler and I get off the sled and your uncle's like, you got any beer? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't drink. You got, got any weed? <laughs> And I'm like, I don't smoke. I'm sorry. You know, I felt bad because he gave me a lift. And, you know, he's this icon in Alaska, especially being from the valley. And I hiked with Richie Fowler and we ripped together down this face. But I, I can, that memory is clear as day. And I've told it to your uncle a couple times. That is it's awesome. just so awesome uh, to me, you know. And that's kind of where it like started a bit. I went to, so when I finally got to, uh, to college in Reno, I had always dorked around with a camera because my dad started making better money and traveling the world with my mom on these trips. And they got a camera to film when they're in China or Italy or whatever. And my brother and I would dork around and film each other to make videos. We never made, actually edited a video. It was just all raw footage, you know, jumping BMX or snowboarding off the roof or whatever, mayhem. <laughs> and then in college, I started filming like the parties and snowboarding. And a year before I graduated, which I think was 2003, um, I had like bought a camera. I filmed a bunch of Alaska friends, Mitch Brooks, um, Lennon Weller, my buddy, um, Mike Dermer, who, who has passed away, RIP Mike, and some friends from that I grew up in the Valley that were going to school in Reno. And I was like, I'm doing it. 
I'm actually going to take the footage and make a, a video. And I had never edited, right? So I got a computer. My little brother helped me boost it up. This was like Adobe Premiere 5.0. And I made a snowboard movie with all my uh, college friends. They all had parts. There was partying in it, too, credits, intro. And I spent all summer doing it. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to make uh, snowboard videos. How do I do that? Like, how do I get there? And my freshman year, well, I guess it would be my sophomore year. Could have been my junior year, really, time-wise, you know? Mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but it was my sophomore, sophomore year, first year at UNR. And in the dorms, on the same floor in Nye Hall, um, was Pierre Minhondo, who had started a company called Neo Proto. I don't know if you remember those movies. Oh yeah, I love those movies. So good. Yeah. And so I saw, you know, a peer, a, pe a Pierre Pierre <laughs> <laughs> doing it ahead of me that was, you know, close to my age. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, and so I had one more year left to finish my degree. So I made sure I finished that. And then my parents, I think, gave me like 2,500 bucks or something for graduating college. And I put that in the bank until I could figure out what camera I wanted to buy. I did a bunch of research and, and whatnot. And I bought a Sony VX2000, mm -hmm. yep. which was the hotness yeah. at the time. And I was friends with a lot of Alaska, you know, yourself included, uh, so I was friends with a guy named Ryan Sturgeon mm -hmm. and he was friends with Jason Borgstead. And I knew that Borg made movies with, uh, Bergner. I didn't know that they had kind of split ways that coming year, but I was like, okay, I need to get Borgstead's phone number and call him up and tell him I want to film snowboarding. I have a camera and I have the will to do it. Yeah. And so I got the number from Sturgeon and called Borg up and, um, you know, kept work. I graduated college and I worked probably three jobs. I worked at a juvie hall. I packed trucks at night and I bartended three nights a week and then, and then also filmed, started filming. And so Jason gave me an opportunity, um, you know, I didn't film a lot with him, but towards the end I did. And then we, and then he um, invited me to Southern California to film like all these skits and stuff mm -hmm. and that I had never, you know, I had never acted. I never had been a part of that world. And so it was fun to like come up with ideas. Roger Post was with us and uh, we helped him, helped Jason create uh, the movie Nice Gordon, which I happened to like uh, play a detective in. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie. I love that movie. I love it too, man. Uh, looking back on it now, I'm just like, I feel so fortunate that uh, he gave me the opportunity to do that. And that was kind of the launching pad was with Jason. And that's how I went to Borderline Camp in 2004. And that was the first time I really met everybody. First time I met Manchild and, and 
Dre and Mark Thompson and I think maybe we met there or in in Reno but everybody Lando D's your brother yeah like your brother Derek uh Lando and I were like three peas in a pod man yeah I remember we're like that. we're like instant friends um and I'm still friends with them to this day it's just different as an adult you know life goes on um but everybody thought I was from like California because I was real tan. My hair was blonde and I was with Borgstead. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm from Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were like, oh, <laughs> Dre's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> um, but so I was, you know, he was very, uh, Jason was very focused on that project. So I was off with him a lot. But at night, you know, I'd hang out with all you guys, have a great time. And then I was like, what's Burtner? What's Burtner's program all about? Those guys seem like they're having a, having a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. And initially, you know, creative differences. I, I had fun, but it, I was like, this isn't really what I thought making a snowboard video was going to be like. This is with Borgstead? Yeah. Okay. Um. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do this, you know? And that was year one. It wasn't like a full season, you know? It was whenever I could film friends in Tahoe, like uh, Ben Bogart or Kirk mm -hmm. Steinbaugh. And, uh, and, and that's how I met Brady Farr. And we've been friends ever since. Uh, Borg was like, hey, uh, my friend Brady's coming to Reno. Can you pick him up from the airport? I'm not in town. Mm -hmm. Can he can he stay at your house? <laughs> so Brady was kind of <laughs> dropped into my lap, and uh, man, we had such a great time. Man, we were there was snow in Reno. Uh, there's this famous kink rail at Clayton Middle School, mm -hmm. and at the time, like Stephen Duke backlipped it. I think Aaron Bittner in a Mac Dog movie frontboarded it, and then Brady frontboarded pretzeled it. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And I was like, whoa, this dude's like next level. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, it turns out all these Alaska guys are next level. Why aren't they like, why aren't they in a Mac dog movie? You know? Yeah. And shout out to Brady far because, uh, man, we've been friends throughout. We were, we're still friends. We've been, we were friends throughout my career. And anytime I'd go up to Alaska, he was super helpful, whether it was with, uh, Bodie Merrill doing his real snow or I'm um, with Transworld or whatever with Oli Gagnon. Um, Brady would come out and, you know, and knowing Brady, man, he'd get a clip. Yeah. He'd get a photo. He, you know, um, I've always loved helping others or bringing friends along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Alaska riders miss that ride in snowboarding. It's, it's a very difficult industry like most to navigate. Why do you think Alaskans have maybe a specifically hard time doing it? Well, here's, well, it's just my perspective because I am Alaskan and I, and I got to meet everybody and that was my group, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure it happens with riders from Utah, riders from Tahoe, etc. But I think part of it is the distance. It's really, it was, I don't know if it's the same now. But it's really hard to make it in the snowboard industry unless you moved away from Alaska and then you made your name and then you came back to Alaska to film. 
And you can look at John Cooley, Mark Landvik, Bertner. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Borgstead was living in Tahoe at the time. Um, yeah, and then even if you did that, it might not work out. You know, Darian Draper, Mark Thompson. I mean, those guys, there's so many names to list that had this, you know, had the skill. Um, but for some reason, I don't know if it was personality wise or growing up in Alaska, you're just like, yeah, let's fucking do it. Like, mm-hmm. let's quit thinking about it. <laughs> let's, let's fucking hit the biggest shit and let's party harder than anybody at night. And so maybe the partying part got in there. It's hard for me to say. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think just in general, it's a hard industry, um, to get into. And then there's, you know, like, there's like the cool guys, you know, the cool guy crew. Mm-hmm. And, that's, yeah. and that's really hard to get in with, you know, whatever that might be during that time period, you know, like Mac dog or standard or, or, uh, Pierre's movies or eventually like movies I worked on with Transworld and Videograss, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I am not the cool guy, but I'm with the cool guys, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's tough. I, I think that since we've been talking or we talked about earlier, the borderline years and there was all that infrastructure, right? There was a shop that nurtured that scene and a camp. involved yeah a camp and involved in that scene was uh the writers and the filmers and so you had this culture you know that really helped each other um but i think that maybe when that fractured when borderline went out of business it it kind of decimated all of that yeah and i think it was timing too cuz you got to think about like your dad and uncle kind of opened the door, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the first snowboard video I ever watched was Project Six mm-hmm. by FLF Films, and I saw your uncle in there, and I was like, "What? Alaskans are in these videos?" Um, and then fast forward to like, I was at the '98 X Games in Crested Butte. I didn't even know who Borgstead was, and he won the Big Air contest. And I was like, "Eagle River, what? People are in the industry." And then you got to look at when uh, Borderline stopped. Yeah, I think it was a few years after that, but social media started popping up and access to different sports and distractions came into factor into play too, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're, you grow up in the eighties or nineties as a snowboarder, you're like, cool. I'm like on this one track, right? Mm-hmm. kids that go go up to the mountain now they're like check their social media hey i've got a buddy that's gonna go rip the boar tide later should we go you know do this other activity so maybe there's more distractions now um but yeah that infrastructure once that disappeared and the people that paved the path to the industry that road kind of dried up but yeah so i worked with Borg, and then I met Jesse um, at Borderline Camp 04, and he was like, hey, you know, in the fall, he's like, hey, why don't you, uh, 
you know, if, if you still want to film and, and, and uh, learn how to edit and everything, why don't you hop in with us? Cause you're, you know, already friends with some of the writers mm -hmm. and you live in Tahoe and you can be that guy. And I was like, yeah. And that was a, uh, uh, cue the birds. And man, I spent three years with think Thank, with Jesse Bertner and Gus and Brady and Mark and Dre and, just became a family with those guys, you know, and uh, learned a lot of how to do it from from Bertner. And um, made three videos with them. Cue the birds, patchwork patterns, and thanks brain. I did have like one clip or two in Thunk at the time because I was friends with uh, John Lang. I think he, he was my first video clip ever uh, in a video. Do you um, remember the trick? They do like an like a uh, under flip like off of this jump in Tahoe, like a cork five, or maybe a cab cab cork five. Yeah, I remember it because Robot Food had just come out, and so I was getting super nerdy artsy with rack of focus with a, a fucking pine tree needle. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think you I know? remember that shot actually. Yeah, and yeah, I had just really got the camera and Lang had that camera and he's like, Here, let me show you how to work it a bit. And then I set up on my tripod super far away and got artsy fartsy, rack of focus, and that was my first shot. Um but yeah, so you know, growing up in the valley, far removed from the snowboard industry and a bit removed from borderline. I had my my room was plastered with all these covers and and shots from Snowboarder Mag and Transworld snowboarding all over my wall, right? Mm -hmm. As a teenager. Through osmosis and through those things being there, fast forward, I did a movie with Borg. So I did four movies and then I got a call from from uh Corey Kaniniak who had worked on those Neo Proto movies and who I met in Tahoe. And my name came up that Transworld Snowboarding was going to start making movies. Actually, it, real quick, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you before we move on from yeah. Think Think, do you have any stories that stick out in your mind from that time? Oh my gosh, do I? <laughs> there's so many, there's so many, man. I mean, I bet. To, I mean, even from the time, uh, so Ben Bogart, another human with just like amazing talent incredible incredible and just incredible natural talent and doesn't think about it at all very unique human mm -hmm. and uh we were at unr lawler ledge very famous ledge got a bunch of snow set it up bogart was supposed to be there at a certain time he partied the night before so i'm filming with roger post and I think some local guys. And then Bogart rolls up, probably second or third try, decides to just switch 50-50 this giant ledge mm -hmm. and greases it. You know, he like definitely smelled like the night before. <laughs> just killed it. And I'm like, man, this guy is amazing. The next day, Jeremy Jones and MacDog show up and Jeremy Jones 50-50'd it and it was in his MacDog part. And that was regular, right? That was regular. Yeah. That wasn't switch. So that's a, that's a memory. Um, and then, uh, man, just all the times we hiked turn again, 
I remember one day, I think we filmed like two street spots in Anchorage in the spring. And then Bertner Genevieve and I headed out to Turnigan, hike Turnigan and filmed a jump or two jumps. You know, we filmed like four spots in a day. <laughs> That's crazy. And I think one year I hiked Turnigan 15 days in a row with Bertner. Something crazy. Yeah. Like it, my back hurts thinking about it now. <laughs> but, um, man, what else? I mean, I was, you know, so I was living in Tahoe, Reno side. So I was filming a lot of those guys, uh, Jed Hoffman. And then, you know, people from Washington and Alaska would come down and we'd shoot. Um, I had a lot of good memories. Uh, Patchwork Patterns year was like kind of a mind expander for me. And I think the snowboard industry, it just took them a while to catch up. In what way? Uh, just the creative looking at snowboarding not as like okay you can hit a cheese wedge you can hit a down bar you could ride some natural terrain oh no uh you could ride in a parking lot an ollie a cone or fast plant it made it like um accessible accessible and tangible to any kid across the world that had at least had snow you could have a flat parking lot and snowboard yeah you know and so i think that creative juices of of the idea of the movie and the idea of where snowboarding could head and being with Gus a lot of the time and just seeing the way he saw snowboarding. And yeah, I just got way into it. You know, I think Scott Stevens was, I met him during that video and, uh, just spending a lot of time with Gus. He's just such a unique, uh, loving, awesome human. Yeah. And he looks at the world way different than I do. And, and think tank in general, out of all the crews that I worked with, you know, and everybody works hard. Everybody, every athlete, every snowboarder is trying to make it. They all work hard. But think tank, we had a smaller budget and just a lot of Alaskans together of like, with us together, we can do anything. And we just worked our butts off, mm -hmm. like hardcore with no budget, you know, um, I like to think that I was already a hard worker, but being with that crew really stepped my game up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that working hard and a bit of stubbornness got me um, where it took me in the snowboard industry and luck, you know? Yeah, luck is always a big one. And the luck of the draw on, on after Think Think was I got a call from Corey Kaniniak, who I met years prior, and he was like, hey, Transworld's going to start making movies again, because I think MacDog put out a couple volumes back in the day. Um, and your name came up. Would you be interested? And at the time, I was like, four years in, I was like, I already made it, you know, with Think Think. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't have any aspirations past that. <laughs> I was like, I'm doing it. I'm going to do this as long as I can. And I was like, wait, this is a giant opportunity. And I got scared. And I called up Bertner and he's like, hey, let's talk about it when I get back. I'm in Mexico. So I had to wait a week. And I was like, hey, can you guys wait a week <laughs> for my answer? Because <laughs> inside I was like, fuck yeah, I want to work for Transworld. This is such an insane opportunity. I was scared. I'm like, imposter syndrome. Am I good enough? Can I do this? And you probably didn't want to 
accidentally burn a bridge either. No, I didn't want to burn a bridge. And, the, you know, it was more than a crew, you know, it was a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I finally had that conversation with Bertner, he was like, Gary, you got to do it. Like your time has come and, and, and go for it. You know, you mm-hmm. have my blessing and it's all good. And so I said, yes. And then I was like, oh man, I need a new camera. I need a new computer. <laughs> I need to learn, like, learn how to edit better. Cause I had only done little edits here and there. And, uh, yeah, I mean that first year, I mean, my first trip was with Chad Otterstrom in Colorado in his hood. And then right after that, I went to the Arctic challenge in Norway and filmed Terry and met Jamie Lynn and all these heroes. I went from like no budge living on a couch to tons of budge and no worries, which made filming and editing a lot easier because it's hard work. Yeah. To yeah. film a video part, I don't, uh, the general public doesn't know how hard it is, you know, but maybe they do with other passions, but you really have to put in everything, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your money, relationships. Mm-hmm. You got to have horse blinders and go for it, especially at a certain age. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, pretty crit. That was, I mean, it's an insane transition from think tank to trans world. Um, you're, you're filming similar stuff, maybe not the most like creative side of it compared to think tank, but it's, it's still like creating a, I would try to create like a friend family vibe with the writers I was filming because I'm a friendly guy and we're all there for kind of, you know, the same goal. A writer's trying to get his best trick on where whatever it, it may be. And I'm trying to get the best angle and to have fun with it. Because if you're not having fun, you might as well be shoveling shit <laughs> and, getting pay, and getting paid more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of people that weren't having fun, you know, but that's just a personality type. There was more people having fun with it than not that I experienced, you know? Mm-hmm. So we made these days get real and in color. And, uh, after in color, I think Joe Carlino shout out to Carlino gave me a huge opportunity. He was the man in the office. He's the main director, you know, but he allowed me to edit three parts and maybe do the credits intro, learned so much from him and also the John Holland at the time, Transworld Skateboarding, they were editing their skate movie and I learned a bunch from him. And the crazy thing is, Cody, those posters in my room in Palmer when I was a teenager when I walked into the Transworld office for the first time in Southern California, all those covers were on the wall as like, the, you know, the first hundred covers of Transworld. What was that like walking in there for the first time and seeing those? I was blown the fuck away. I was like, what the fuck? How did I, <laughs> how did, did that, did that get planted in my head at 15? And now I'm, uh, was I at the time 25, you know, a decade later Mm -hmm. and I'm there. And it wasn't like I set out when I started filming and editing snowboarding 
was to work for Transworld. I just wanted to do it because I love snowboarding so much. And I and kind of have an artistic eye, you know. So going into that situation, how did you remain grounded, you know, instead of maybe getting starstruck with this thing that, you know, you manifested without realizing you manifested it? Man, I think, uh, I think maybe just my upbringing, uh, the negative side of things, you know, like nothing was ever good enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So to me, I kept trying, you know, like with running and other things. And, uh, I think that part of me just kept me humble and you don't know when you're in it, yeah. whether you're being a douche or not. Or I'm a cool guy. I work for Transworld. I'm filming Terry or Jamie Lynn or Chad Otterstrom or Louis or Gus or whoever, you know. I've got a budget. I'm so cool. That never entered my mind. I was like, cool, I can I can film and edit and I get to go on these tours and we have DVDs. I have something tangible that I helped create and that's all I wanted. And so luckily, most of the people I worked with were of the same mindset. That said, it is, uh, I I had friends at Mount Baker and other places that were like, hey man, I'm so glad that you never cool guide me when you were working for Transworld and Videograss. Mm -hmm. And maybe it goes back to the roots with Borg and Bertner and doing it on no budget and just trying to bring friends along for the ride because they they helped me so maybe i need to give it back you know like when i come to alaska i call up brady if i'm shooting with whoever you know uh phil jacques or um i don't i can't i don't really know because i was uh yeah i just never got caught up in it I was definitely starstruck. Like I have a photo of me in Oslo, Norway with my arm around Jamie Lynn's neck and Terrier's neck (laughs) for a photo op. Cause I was like, I have to get this photo. This is like a childhood dream. You know, this is like meeting Michael Jordan or whoever of your youth that seems unattainable. They seem like they're not a real person. And then you're like, Oh, they are human. Mm Mm-hmm. They just have to happen to, you know, pave the way and are still, you know, doing it. Yeah. The only time I ever met Terrier was at the Mount Baker Bank Slalom when I was a kid and my dad won his division and, you know, got the golden duct tape and Terrier stood up, walked over to my dad and congratulated him. And so me and my dad are sitting there at a table, you know, where they're giving the the announcements and giving out all the awards. And here comes Terry. And we're like, what is he doing? (laughs) He's walking right over toward us. And he like patted my dad on the back and he said, congratulations. And we were both were like, holy shit. He was recognizing, you know, the G. (laughs) Yeah, it was awesome. Um, And obviously, like, we don't have to linger too long on Terry. (laughs) but i mean (laughs) no but i mean yeah i mean he's like to me you know the michael jordan 
of snowboarding not to not to uh take something from the bomb hole but you know for me at the time it was and so to meet all these people and to find out that they're human and and some of you know most of them were nice a lot of the older pros didn't have any scrutiny on them so some of them so you know sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes yeah and there was a couple of those where i'm like oh man you're a you're a douche <laughs> yeah that like, sucks when that happens i'm like how are you you've traveled the world and how are you kind of a little bit racist or you know whatever else i will not name names um but yeah i mean that's what uh man my journey took me to through to trans world and then joe carlino was like hey they want us to do more work for the same pay they wanted us to do uh like a tv show and we had started putting edits on the internet on the website in 2008 mm -hmm. of snowboarding and nobody had really done it at that level like i was responsible for three web edits a month while we were making the the movie and there was three of us and so we're like pumping out like 10 edits a month and at the time i was like man i think this is gonna kill the dvd <laughs> oh so you kind of first saw it oh yeah i talked about it and obviously it did um but i was lucky enough to be there when when the the money was still there and the budgets were still there you know our movies were like two hundred fifty thousand dollar budgets or right around there for you know music rights travel budget um all of that um but after three years of doing it joe i think was burned out being the guy in the office and and he was like you know they want us to do more work for the same pay you know mm -hmm. and you don't make a lot of money as a filmmaker in snowboarding it's not horrible at that level i was like i'm a millionaire <laughs> mm -hmm. you know i always say this i have millions of dollars worth of memories in the snowboard industry with the travel and the friendships and and those magic moments that you capture together mm -hmm. you know when to when somebody's trying to reach their goal and you capture it you know it's it's magical um and also weird that you're <laughs> you're filming each other <laughs> You know, yeah. it's like to the general public, they're like, what are you doing in Quebec filming a rail? You know, there's a ski hill over here, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it used to be like, are you filming for Warren Miller? And then it became YouTube. Yeah. And then the tail end was Instagram or maybe. Um, but we Joe was like, we need to leave Transworld. We're going to go over to Videograss with Justin Meyer, who I met through Bertner in those years. And I was like, you know, I've been with you for three years, Joe. I trust your judgment, you know? And we hopped over to Video Grass and, and kind of brought our crew of riders over. And we did two videos with them. Um, Joe did one video with them and then went on to Nike. Um, but at the time, we had, you know, there's a lot of work in an, in an upstart, mm -hmm. even, even with hopping in with Video Grass. And so we were trying to get trailers out, everything for the trade show. And then it turns out we got nominated for best snowboard video at the Transworld Snowboard Awards for a movie we made the year before called In Color. And we, we had left Transworld. So it was this weird moment at the trade show. And then we won. And Joe and I walked on stage and I was just like, this feels kind of gangster. 
that we that we won. Yeah. And that we used to work for you guys and we left. You know, it, it took some balls to just be like, nah, because we could have kept on doing that for probably another five years or so. Did you know while you were filming that you wanted to move on from filming snowboarding? So, yeah. So back to goal setting. When I started, I said, I'll give myself a decade and then I'll pick my head up and see where I'm at. So I did, uh, after Transworld, I did two videos with video grass and then I was kind of over it, but I was at year nine and then, uh, Dan breezy called me up out of the blue for year 10 and was like, Hey, can you come help, uh, film with me? and stick with just me for this new Transworld project, you know, three years down the line that they started Transworld again, like the video. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, I had already sold my sled at the time. My foot was halfway out the door and he's like, Oh, you know, I'll figure it out. I have an extra sled. And, uh, I filmed with him and like Bjorn Linus and that crew. And then after that, I was like, I'm done. It's been 10 years. Uh, I've climbed the mountain. I've gone further than I ever expected to, you know, patchwork patterns. I was at the top of the mountain (laughs) in my mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, winning best snowboard video, like that's was never a, uh, a goal, but maybe a dream that could be cool. Was it patchwork patterns that won best snowboard video or was it in color? No, it was in color that won best snowboard video. That was 2011. Okay. I'm just saying, uh, at, at the point of Patrick patterns, one, two, three years into filming and it, at that point I was mostly just filming snowboarding. I was like, I'm at the top of the mountain. And then this whole other career happened for seven years after that. Mm-hmm. And it was just, uh, a cherry on the top, you know? And I have just have like so many, I, you know, I still have, friendships to this day with people that I filmed with, you know, and people that, you know, I've been out of the industry for a while. Uh, I think 2013 or 14, 2014 was my last year with, with breezy. I'd have to fact check, but, um, I don't know, approaching almost a decade. And it's interesting that the past couple of years, there's been a little shout outs here and there, you know, where Louis talked about me and I'm like, what we filmed like 2008. So I, I feel like it's those moments that mean more where friends and people that I've filmed with, um, have those memories, you know? Mm -hmm. So after 10 years, I was like, okay, I've done more than I ever expected. Right. Yeah. Um, there's no other goals that I have. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall with, you know, movie making in general. And I'm like, there's so much more to life. Like I've put 10 years of my life all in and it's been fantastic, but I've also burned out my passion and I want, I have all these other goals. You know, I want to have a family. I want to have a house. I want to have some roots, you know, cause I'd filmed for six months in that time period each year in that time period i'd be home maybe four days a month if that Mm -hmm. and then it'd be a month to two months editing 
and then it would be premiere season traveling. So I was just a traveling, traveling filmmaker for 10 years. So it's been fun to lean into having more roots and, and seeing what's around me locally. Um, but I did film, I kept filming after that. I filmed a hunting show for five seasons called team elk, um, that, uh, a filmer friend of mine, I was working when I was working with breezy was like, Hey, we have this, uh, hunting show. If you want more work, I did a five minute phone interview and, and, you know, I, I finished filming in April with breezy and I started filming the hunting show in August. And that was, you know, three months a year. And it paid as much as a year in snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of similar vibe, not the type of guys that I normally hang out with, like MMA fighters, NASCAR drivers, country music stars, um, more that group. But it would the vibe was the vibe was very similar because they're getting a break from their life and they get to be like a 12 year old kid. You know, they got this dream hunt trip, dream trip that's getting captured for TV. So vibes were always high. Um, besides, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm a lover of all people unless you cross a line, you know, you got to have boundaries in life. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's, there's, uh, ideologies that I didn't, that didn't line up with me that I just had to like, kind of, you know, listen to and move and move on. Um, cause that world kind of has that mentality and not the professionals so much I was working with. It was more guides, but you'd be surprised, you know, like a guide in Mon small town, Montana, we had the same outlook on life, you know, and, and politics. So, yeah. Yeah. My dad takes hunters out on his boat and for, for a summer, I deckhanded for maybe a month and we took a bunch of, you know, hunters out and they surprised me, you know, they're very, you know, they can range from being like really spiritual yeah, to maybe a little hard headed, but that kind of goes for everybody. But there, there was definitely this thread throughout that show about conservation with animals, conserving land so that future generations could hunt and to keep populations up. Mm -hmm. It's this weird thing like, okay, I'm going to kill an animal, but it's also going to help the herd in the long run, more biodiversity. Um, so there were definitely like, yeah, cause there's the whole NRA thing, right? And I, which I'm not like down with at all, but I grew up hunting and fishing in Alaska. It's just when, uh, when fame and ego get in the way, right? Yeah. Like being, being humble where you're at in life, wherever it is, um, whether you're having the best time or the worst time in life, just killing it on all, you know, firing on all pistons mm -hmm. that, that time period will pass and you, you will have time periods where you're at the lowest in your life and that will pass too. So just be humble and know that it, that it comes in waves, life, you know, tragedy or celebration and to just be humble. And so a lot of, some of those people in that world are not that way. They're just like, you know, I'm a fucking man. 
<laughs> That's so funny. Kill everything inside. That's so funny you brought up that song because as I was writing questions for you today, this is so ironic. I actually was listening to that song from Orgasmo. Oh, now yeah. you're a man. Man, 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 man. Now you're a man. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I must I must have been like on the same wavelength as you or something. Well, Cody, I put that song in my first video I ever made before uh, with Mitch Brooks and, and uh, all the Alaska kids. And this, the movie is called Beringia, super nerdy anthropology, land ice bridge between Siberia and Alaska. Uh, but I have that. I think I think that might be Mitch Brooks' part. Shout out to Mitch. <laughs> we were big into that movie at the time. And we were always like, yeah. Now you're a male. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? That yeah. mentality. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, just a different world. But it was kind of like being on a snowcat trip where everything was like paid for and you had a chef mm -hmm. and it wasn't hard. You know, they're like, oh, this is hard, huh? And I'm like, no, have you ever filmed snowboarding? That's yeah. Way fucking harder. <laughs> You know, I filmed some wakeboard stuff with friends here on a trip and they're like, sorry, Gary, it's like, it's kind of difficult. I'm like, yeah, 80 degrees in my shorts at a <laughs> wakeboard park. It's real hard to film. <laughs> All perspective. Do you remember filming any like really gnarly hunts at all? Oh yeah. Um, man, I'll have to send you a link to one of them, but it's called my Montana Giant. And they started bringing in general public onto the TV show. And this guy was an engineer. And I had already spent a week with him. I hiked 100 miles with my camera in six days. And so my, and, and the elk weren't ready. They weren't in rut. They weren't answering. And this guy, you know, he hunts on his own all the time. And this guy was a badass. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, I'm carrying my tripod my camera my food and water and we're hiking 25 miles a day towards the end of it i was like of that week i was like this is this is ridiculous let's work smarter not harder yeah <laughs> you know i had to get new i had to get new hiking boots after that um and then so we at the, towards the end of that trip from a thousand yards we saw this giant elk which a thousand yards is real far. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on, right? At dusk. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, I'm on the same 11,000 acres in Montana with two other guys, separate possible TV show episode. And we're down in a gully and our partner who's up above scoping out this elk is freaking out. I'm filming the audio of this elk because I can't see it. And it's, I kid you not, it sounds like Bigfoot. I have six minutes of this audio and it sounds like Bigfoot or like a bear sometimes can sound this way. It didn't sound like an elk. It sounded like ape-like, roaring. And this guy had eyes on it. And he comes down after the elk never came in. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is the biggest elk I've ever seen. It's a monster. So those are two encounters. Fast forward, I'm back with the engineer. Three weeks later, we're on this giant elk somehow, again, on this property. 
The same one? Same. At the time, I didn't know, but same one. Okay. We had been we had been hunting all morning, and there was like 15 bulls like scattered across this 11,000 acres, and we ended up in this pocket. We had lunch. Most people go back. Uh, elk are active in the morning and at night, but this guy is just like Navy SEAL hunter. You know, <laughs> he's like, it doesn't matter that it's 98 degrees in Montana, Gary. <laughs> we're going for it. I'm like, all right, I know you're. I know, I know you by now, you know, and we catch, we, we hear this bull and he gets sight of it. And he's like, this is a giant bull. It's only has two cows. It's not a herd bull. A herd bull is usually like the biggest bull in the area. And they have like 40, 40 cows, 40 ladies. This guy was just a lone wolf elk. And he had like two ladies. Uh, and so we're looking across this ridge line scattered trees it's kind of a v valley we're on the one side of the valley the elk is on the other side i still haven't seen it after almost a month right Mm -hmm. and he's like okay gary we got to hike we're in the broad daylight so we have to be in the shadows he's like we're gonna hike along this ridge dip down in this valley hike back up and head to where i think the elk is we're gonna and call him in and this is bow hunting this isn't rifle yeah so we so we do that and the wind is changing. You really need the wind on your side. If if an animal catches wind of you, they split. Yeah. And, and elk are very skittish. Um, so we hike up. We're getting close to where we think the elk or where the elk was originally. Uh, you get super nervous, you know, and your adrenaline just spikes at that point. Mm-hmm. Even as a filmer, you know, your my legs start shaking. Well, you're so we, in it too. Yeah, we're in. I'm in it. So we 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 both have to take a piss. So we take a <laughs> so we take a leak. You know, like get it all out. Head over to where we think it is. Now we're at the opposite end of the valley that we were. And he calls out to it. And we hear it. We hear an elk, but it's behind us now. And so what had happened, Cody, is as we were walking along this ridge across the valley of from this elk. It had been walking too, and somehow kept walking. We crossed right behind it, and then it hurt us. So we didn't spook it. The wind didn't spook it. We just lucked out in this scenario because a lot of times it goes the other way and you lose the animal. Yeah. And so we get set up, and I get it set up with my camera, and he calls it in, and this thing is the size of a, mo- a fucking moose. She's huge. Just huge animal. And he shoots it from like 10 yards. Oh my gosh. Like I could smell its breath. And I'm on a, you know, I'm like not touching my camera because I'm kind of shaken. Yeah. <laughs> shoots it. It runs like 50 yards and falls and breaks a tree and dies. And we go and we go up to it. And like the antlers, if they're sitting on the ground, are taller than me. And it was just the, this beast of an animal. And he started crying because it was such an epic hunt over like almost a month. And it's the biggest elk he's ever, you know, to this day, it's still the biggest elk he's ever gotten. And I'm like shaking. It's very spiritual and very emotional. Um, yeah. But so that's one that's like the Montana giant. I was on a hunt in Colorado with a Navajo woman who had lost her husband in Afghanistan and he died in the hospital 
after a month, you know, coming back from Afghanistan and was like, I want you to continue hunting with our boys. So she's a, on a hunt. I'm with uh, this woman, Christy Titus, who's a professional hunter. And we're in Colorado. The other thing is being from Alaska, all these guides love that I was from Alaska. It like gave me street cred, <laughs> hunter cred, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a side note. So I'm on this hunt in Colorado uh, with this Navajo woman and she, when her husband died, she went home and there was a falcon on her back porch with its wings spread open for 10 minutes. And she's like, that's the spirit of my husband is this falcon, a bird, right? Yeah. She tells us that at lunch. We go out at night. We're in this forest. About 100 yards from us is this uh, aspen grove, but we're in kind of a sporadic uh, spruce trees for kind of open area but there's like a wall of aspens like 100 yards down uh we hear a bugle the guide uh or no yeah we hear a bugle our guide bugles and then i didn't even know this term at the time but a murder of crows Mm -hmm. flies from the aspens and hovers above us there's like 30 of them and this is right after she told the story of her husband's death and him being uh, a bird, right? Mm-hmm. Boom. One minute later, this bull elk walks straight to us from 100 yards. She kills it. It's her first elk hunt ever. It's the first night after this story. And we're walking up to the elk, and I'm just like, everybody's crying. And I'm like, get the shot. Don't cry. Get the shot. <laughs> and she puts her hand on the elk and just does this Navajo prayer. And man, it was one of the most powerful moments of my life. Besides like my daughter being born to be in the presence of that. Because when I grew up in the Valley, my best friend, Ben Blackout was a Navajo kid and we were runners together. And he passed away my senior year on a, on a run in Juneau, Alaska. And so it kind of, I don't know if it healed some old wounds, brought it full circle, but it was just, man, one of those magical moments in life. Yeah. That that filming afforded me to be a part of, you know. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting what pops up in the course of pursuing something that you're passionate about. You know, whether it's new doors being opened up or spiritual experiences and you just don't expect it yeah and that's i mean that's one of the great gifts of life um you have these goals and it's you know it's cliche but it's true it's the journey it's also being in the moment and understanding where you're at you know all these moments with filming and editing i was in the moment i was feeling it you know Mm -hmm. i was like this has some heavy weight this is some heavy stuff like amazing stuff and I think for some, it could be difficult to be in the mo- I think it's harder to be in the moment maybe for younger generation and people now because there's so, so, much, uh, so many distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people might have just been like, you know, like a Hollywood actor or something. Uh, how was it when you got the Oscar? And it's like, oh, I don't know. Or like, uh, I, that's a bad example, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying, though, because I think that 
do you think Robert De Niro <laughs> was, or, or Al Pacino was aware at the time of being in Scarface at that time of his life? Was he in the moment? Well, I think you that know? the best way to do it is to just be present. So I would think, present. you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but you know, that, that actor that won that award um, might be filming something new. You know, like that movie was three movies ago or two movies ago, or that was last year that he filmed that or she filmed that. And, you know, they're onto something new that they hope catches on. And I think that that's kind of the healthiest way to live because then when you get older, you have like this pool of memories that you can draw from and be proud of them or maybe be embarrassed about them or whatever, right? Like you, yeah, you can, you can do that rather than really, I don't know, like over-appreciating them in the moment. Yeah, or not even uh, acknowledging them. Just like, okay, this is on, on the way to my goal. This awesome thing happened, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. And maybe um, you don't know what that goal is until you reach it, you know? And it can change. I think that, you know, the biggest thing for people is to take the step. You know, it's okay to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you just take a step in a direction and that might lead to a different road than you were expecting, you know, on this, on this journey, whether it's uh, family or career or whatever interest, you know, mm-hmm. just take that step. I mean, you, I, th- I feel like you could relate to that pretty good. Yeah. Just taking the, taking the step and see where it, it takes you. Yeah. Just being brave enough to take that first step. And maybe that's, a part of growing up in Alaska is there is so much adventure and taking uh, steps and new things mm-hmm. and putting yourself in tough situations and getting out of it and being like, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. Yeah. What's the worst thing that could happen? Right. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people I think live the opposite way out of fear to step outside of their normal mundane life. I think that, you know, all you need is that one time, mm-hmm. that one time that you were brave enough to, you know, step outside of the box and you can always draw from that for the next time. And then you have two times and three times and four times. And that's for me, it started with, I want to film snowboarding. How do I get from this point to this point? Talking to my older brother who had already, who was already a little bit further in life. And he's like, you need, you know, you need the gear. You need to be around the people that are doing it mm-hmm. and work hard. And I think just being stubborn and working hard helped a lot, you know, to, to, to continue doing it while others fell off, whether it was writers or filmmakers, you know? Yeah. Kirk Steinbaugh said to ask you what your favorite Reno story is. Oh my gosh. We're going deep. We're going, we're going f- f- far back. Man, my favorite Reno story that I remember, because we were all so hammered, you know, we were all so hammered there. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's a really good, uh, I mean, there's a couple, some of them that uh, correlate with snowboarding. You know, I started filming around the campus with friends and like Scotty Lego and, and Laura Hadar and stuff and got to meet those people. So that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's probably wants like a party story, man. There were so many good parties, so many good Alaskan friends. We kind of had our own group, you know, we, that we could rely on. 
it seems like anytime you live in the lower 48, you could connect with an Alaskan to a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh, this guy, no way. Uh, <laughs> but man, the Mammoth House where Kirk lived, they always had really good parties. Um, man, there were some crazy uh, fights that went down. Um, man, I don't know how to... I mean, it was college life, you know, trying to uh, trying to go to class and party and work and and hook up with girls and uh, snowboard. It's hard to it's hard because <laughs> most of the Reno stuff is pretty uh, fucking crazy, you know. I used to get hammered drunk with everybody, and then I'd go downtown and and go find a motel with a pool and jump off the third story into like four feet of water and do, oh like, my gosh. And do like a lawn chair. You know, when you hit the water and you just turn into a seat real quick. Yeah. I would do that all the time. Not the best judgment at all. One time I was pretty much blackout and I did it. And man, I looking back, I'm like, I could have died. I could have broke my neck. Three um, stories, three stories. I could, I could tell a funny one. Cause I was very, I'm not as mischievous as I, as a father, obviously I've matured, but I was very mischievous. And there was this guy, Chuck, who was the security guard at UNR. And he, I think he put Pierre through a window for a food fight. Once this guy had a bad reputation. He was violent to students. And so I was like, I'm going to get him. And so I dressed up as a homeless person with like rags and a fake beard mm-hmm. in, the, in in like one of the parking structures, you know, and I had a fire extinguisher in my cloak <laughs> and it was fake panhandling. Yeah. And Chuck came up cause somebody called him, you know, and I just sprayed Chuck in his car and, and bolted. <laughs> sprayed him with what? A fire extinguisher. Oh it was my hidden gosh. under my like dirty <laughs> cloak. <laughs> but you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's Reno will always have a, uh, a fondness, you know? Yeah. There was a time and a place to, to act like that. And that was a great time and a great place to do that and to have those memories with friends, you know? But yeah, I was in college. I was like partying and having the best time, you know? And sometimes stepped over the line like most of us in our twenties. How would you describe yourself when you were younger? I was very, uh, very high i still am pretty high energy i use it for like projects and like with my daughter and my wife you know Mm -hmm. i'm the most energetic (laughs) um but i was very i was very energetic man and i wanted to i just had a lust for life i wanted to do everything i wanted to be a part of everything before there was fomo and you know social media Mm -hmm. it's just like oh yeah i love life like I just love to learn, but yeah, I was very hyper, uh, uh, jokester, prankster, maybe took it a little too far when I was, uh, drunk. Um, but I was, I think a lot of it was the childhood stuff. And I was like, look at me, everybody, look at me. I could do anything. But plus I just love to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. I still do. I mean, I got the easy laugh with my daughter and my wife now. <laughs> so, um, 
but yeah, I was, uh, I was definitely super, uh, like most of us, I think at that age, I was very selfish, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm saying, yeah, for myself as well, you know, that's where I'm coming from. But I think you kind of, you know, in life you have to be, you have to, now it's like, you got to take care of yourself so that you can be the best husband mm-hmm. or the best father or b- best brother friend that you can be. And back then it's like, it's a different, it's more self being self selfish, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that all changes when you have a kid big time, that selfishness goes away. You just, uh, your ego gets some healing if it needs it from your kid and you, it's, it's about your child. Mm-hmm. You take a bull, I'd take a bullet for my daughter. I'd step in front of a train, whatever for her, you know, and it's not about me anymore. It's about what's best for her. I've had a long crack at it <laughs> before having a kid, you know, how did that feel when that transition happened? Oh man, it's like a freight train hitting you. Everybody, it's something of, it's something in life. There's examples and perspectives. Like if you're getting into a new sport, you can relate it to another sport is, is my perspective on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but being a father, um, no, people could tell you about it, but it's one of those things in life that you have no fucking clue until your kid, your child is born and you're like, holy fuck, they just give you this baby and you go home and it's up to you <laughs> to keep it alive. <laughs> you know, I had never changed a diaper. I had never done any of this stuff. And I, be, I, I was stay at home dad with my daughter until last April, five days a week. You know, my mm. wife works very hard and creates a great life for us. You know, I do a lot of side jobs while I was, you know, uh, watching after Elia, but now she's, she, September 1st, she's going to start pre-K and she's on to school five days a week. So it's, uh, yeah, the first three months is just like, I've never been to war, but I feel like it's like that where you're like the most tired you've ever been in your entire life, the most hangry you've ever been. You have to give yourself and your partner a lot of grace because everybody's at the end of their ropes mm-hmm. trying to keep this you, your child alive and safe and make sure you're doing all the right things, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's just she comes first. Her and my wife are first and foremost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just this. It, it two or three weeks after she was born my brain did something crazy and I don't know if other parents can attest to this, but all of a sudden I was like, I don't really remember life before Elia. Like, I feel like she's always been with me. Like, I don't know if it's her spirit or what, but the other thing is everything I've done, everything we've just talked about and everything I've done in my life up to this point to her being born has no meaning to me anymore (laughs) compared to her birth Mm -hmm. and raising a child. It's just such a magical experience. That's more magical than putting Carrier and Jamie in a headlock, you know, (laughs) 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 or, or the Navajo woman hunt, you know, it's just, you're like, Holy crap. I, I, I helped create this human, 
and they're growing. I'm kind I kind of looked the same the last four years. But she's <laughs> she's like growing and like she's a giant sponge and just wants wants to learn and play and just I'm a playful person so it helps a lot to to stay in that play. I try to drop whatever I'm doing. I don't do it all the time, but I try to drop whatever I'm doing when she's in that mode and she's like, "Dad, I want to play." Cuz she's not going to be this young for that long. I wonder how much of that feeling that you have, you know, that nothing else matters compared to this, Mm -hmm. how much of that kind of hinges on the fact that you did do that stuff because there are parents out there that maybe have a kid too early, you know, for what they want out of life. And maybe they feel like that child has stolen their youth, you know? Because there's so much that they wanted to accomplish. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're right. That's part of it. Because I, I, I was like, man, I've fulfilled all, all these goals that I had, and goals I didn't even know I had on this journey. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm. I've matured enough. It took me long enough to mature, to go to therapy, to uh, be my best, so that I could be my best as a partner. Shout out to Jennifer Rogers, my wife, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, my soulmate. She's just uh, such an amazing woman and human. And she's, she grew up in Girdwood, Alaska, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, it took me this long traveling around the world to end up marrying another Alaskan. And maybe that's just because we both, we grew up in the same environment so that it's relatable compared to say somebody who grew up in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it is, but, um, and Elia, you know, Jennifer and Elia, uh, in the beginning, like Jennifer was like, do you want a boy? And I'm like, I was like, yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. Cause I know, uh, males somewhat, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it, I just want a healthy baby and it'd be cool to have a girl because she's going to teach me so much more. I feel about women and myself and my wife, you know, mm-hmm. that's how I looked at it and still look at it, you know. You know, I, um, I remember a few years back when you were in Alaska visiting and you and I went on a walk, we got coffee and we oh, yeah. walked the coastal trail and just talked about so much different stuff, snowboarding, friends, what we had going on at the time it was such a different interaction than we've ever had in the past. And it really made me happy to see you on that kind of that next level of maturity. You know, I think that I really love it when friends progress and mature and are on to new and better and healthier things in life. And I'm just so happy and proud of you, man. That means a lot, Cody. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, because we were a couple of Alaskan uh, shitheads in Reno partying hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and that's that's the hope, you know, uh, is that when we see people from our past, that they're hopefully they're like, that's awesome, man. You've changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would suck if somebody's like, wow, you're the same person. You're scary, Gary. Look at my butt. <laughs> Look at my butt. <laughs> 
you know, and, and now that's my daughter. <laughs> Look at my butt, dad. <laughs> Here's my butt, 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 butt. <laughs> you know, she's like mooning us. And I'm like, now, now I'm, the, you know, I'm like, sweetie, we don't moon people, you know? And then in my head, I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> there's a time and a place when you're older yeah. <laughs> to be a, a jokester. <laughs> but Hey man, uh, look at how far we've both come and uh it's just an a, a testament to just becoming an adult and maturing and also embracing it and embracing it and leaning into it you know i've i lean into who i am now like i'm not i don't second guess my decisions at all i am who i am um you know it's still difficult for me to not take things personally i'm getting better at that because i am so sensitive to it you know and as as life goes you know friendships fade they can come in and out they could end abruptly and those used to be difficult for me in the past um and i've gotten better at it and uh yeah i hope i can pass this what took me 43 years I hope I can pass that on to Elia at four years old to give her a better start in, in, in some respect, you know, mm -hmm. cause it's tough. It's tough. It's, it's tough just being a human man. Yeah. And, and in this world, you know, there's so much uh, white noise that gets in the way of living life. You know, like my life is how can I change myself and better myself? so that I can be a better dad and a better husband. And maybe I'll affect my household. Maybe I'll affect my neighborhood, maybe my town with whatever I do positively, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to love and empathy. Cause there's, it's so easy to just like, and we were this way when we were younger, it's so easy to talk shit and look at the negative shit mm -hmm. in life, you know, like that, that person's that, or this person's that in reality it's like you got to send them love because there's so much hate out there mm -hmm. and so much there's a lot of evil out there you know but all you can do really is affect yourself and just give love mm -hmm. the last thing i wanted to bring up because i think it's so awesome um is I just got a text message from Scott Stevens. You know, I sent out some text messages about questions that people would like me to ask you. And I'm not sure if it's as much of a question as it is a statement, but he said the first thing that comes to mind is he remembers hearing a story about how you had to be told not to cheer so loud when people would land tricks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Bernard, Bernard didn't care. He loved it. Right. Okay. Like, and I was just always, I was, I felt like I landed the trick. Mm -hmm. I was that engrossed, you know? So I would just be like, fuck yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Anytime anybody would land anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then my first year with Transworld snowboarding and I'm on a trip with the Louis parody and, uh, we're in Minnesota and Luis English isn't that great at that time, you know, and he wasn't this crazy 
legend he is now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was in the making. But I was like, oh, the French-Canadian guy who's really good at rails. I'll go on a trip with him. And he just blew my mind. And every time he'd land a trick, you know, I'd just be myself. And we get back to, uh, you know, I give the footage after a trip to Carlino, to Joe. And Joe's like, hey, Gary, do you think you can uh, <laughs> wait like three seconds before you yell for editing? <laughs> and at the time, it bummed me out so much. But I got it as I became more of an editor. I was like, yeah, I, we need like three seconds at the end there if we want to ramp something, if we want to edit a certain way. But also it takes away from how organic it was for me. <clears throat> but I just remember the stark contrast because Bernard was like, more yelling, more hype. You know, he, yeah. the more the better. The, you know, he's more organic with it. Like, how is it happening naturally? Yeah, yeah. Where our formula was more like Mac Dog or Transworld Skate at the time but that was yeah i remember <laughs> i remember that because louis like backlipped this kink and like did these tricks that i guess some people had never done and i was like stoked <laughs> joe was not stoked <laughs> <laughs> and you can hear it man i think he had to like lower the volume on some of the trick ride outs in uh these days <laughs> people are watching if somebody has the these days dvd watch louis part you probably hear me yelling in the background. <laughs> That's cool of Scott to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm a snowboarder, man. Like, I'm an Alaskan. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a snowboarder, you know, and I'm going to snowboard the rest of my life until I can't do it. It brings me so much joy, and I hope to pass that joy on to Elia or something similar that she's that stoked about. You know, uh, snowboarding for me is like, you know, now I'm a powder hound. Like I'll do methods and ride shoots and stuff, but I'm a powder hound. Mm -hmm. Easier on the body. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And just feels great, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, but that moment that you're, you know, when you do a heel side turn in powder, you get this weightlessness. You feel like you're almost flying and, and, and you're detached, right? You're not on your phone. You're in the moment. And there's only a couple things in life where you're truly focused in the moment i i ride motorcycles and i'm definitely in the moment with that snowboarding is the same those activities are i think are really great stress relievers in life too to be in the moment well gary that that's it for my questions and i wanted to let you know that we've been chatting for over two hours and i purposely wanted it to be this long because you're always hitting me up about the podcast and asking me if I've ever thought about going three hours. So I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make sure I go along with Gary. <laughs> There's so much more I could talk about. I just want, let me just, uh, I finished filming and editing, became a husband, stay at home dad. And, uh, I really got into mechanical working with my hands on motorcycles, cars and stuff. And, uh, man, I, I, I've never been happier in my life than to have the family that I have and being so, a lot of people say blessed, I guess I'm blessed, lucky, whatever you want to call it, fortunate. Um, yeah, man, I just love life and 
all that it has to offer and the learning moments and the failing moments. And I really appreciate the friendships I've made along the way in snowboarding in Alaska, our friendship, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I hope that you and I, cause we, you and I can get on any level, uh, with conversation, like going back to that walk, you know, I like to get spiritual and deep and I also like fart jokes. <laughs> so <laughs> that's me. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 